Uh, if you have your Bibles or your electronic device and you want to look at Matthew chapter 5, we're going to be back there again. Uh, and before we look any further into God's word, let's just commit our time once again to him. Father, I thank you for your word, uh, that revelation of your heart of who you are. We've got the written word, we had the living word in Jesus Christ, Father, so that we can make sense out of the world that is around us. Uh, we see so often in so many places where this kingdom of this world is in confusion, um, searching for answers that it just can't come up with. But Father, I pray today that as we look into your kingdom again, we will see the way that you have intended for your church to impact the world around us. In Jesus' name, help us today. Amen. As we have been looking at the Beatitudes and looking at the whole Sermon on the Mount now, uh, we are addressing that issue of influence. How do you change the world? Um, everybody's been probably told your whole life long that, you know, we can change the world. Um, and yes, we can. We can change it for the good or for the bad. And all of the politicians and all of the kings and princes and dictators and rulers of our world wide all over uh, believe they know how to change the world better for themselves. Um, but when we talk about a kingdom of righteousness, a kingdom where things are as they ought to be, you must turn to the word of God. He has the blueprint. He has all of the needed information for righteousness to exalt a nation. It isn't really going to come any other way. And as I think about this, um, anybody like old television shows, you ever watch Hogan's Heroes or the Beverly Hillbillies? You remember, yes, you remember an old show called The Odd Couple? That was one of my father's favorites. He loved that. Yeah, I think it was Felix and Oscar, you know, total different ends of the spectrum. They weren't alike in any fashion whatsoever. But they got along. They were together. They were kind of like uh, what we spoke about last week, our friends Simon and Matthew. Uh, they were the red elephant and blue donkeys. They didn't, nothing looked like should work. But the kingdom of God is bigger than all of that. And you could change these pictures into rich and poor. You could change it to educated and uneducated. You could change it into um, making a splash in the world and somebody who is totally quiet and really not known at all in the world. You see, the beauty of the kingdom of God isn't that it gathers a bunch of people who all think just like each other. The beautiful thing about God's kingdom and his church is it brings people together who are not at all alike, who in fact, probably in the world, if it weren't for the cross, might not get together ever. There may not be anything in common. It could be young. It could be old. It doesn't matter race or anything. Everybody is brought together in a common place of equality through Jesus Christ. And that's what we celebrate in the kingdom. That's what brought Matthew and Simon together. That's what brought all of the disciples together, educated, uneducated, uh, different kinds of professions, but could come together with the banner of Jesus Christ over top of them, knowing that they were, they were uniting in wasn't just an idea. It just wasn't a fanciful notion. It was a reality that could bring salvation to the world, could bring 
brightness. So any of the other banners that people might accumulate themselves under or gather under uh, can't solve issues, can't solve problems. It might make it better in some eyes and worse in some. Jesus Christ has come to get a people who aren't alike, who don't think alike, but to bring them together in a bond and in a unity. And as we've been looking at Jesus' sermon, he's bridging a gap. He's bridging the gap from the Old Testament, uh, all the sacrificial system and all those laws, and he's bringing it into his fulfillment of who he is and what he came to do. And he's bridging the gap looking forward to the rest of the whole New Testament to say here is how all that came before makes sense because it's going to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ himself. And he's there at this sermon. It's like the pivot point of all redemption history. Everything that's gone before, fulfilled in him so it can be fulfilled in us. And in that happening, then we're able to march forward in the kingdom of God and in his strength. We can see that one of the themes that we're looking at now is that captured in the phrase, you have heard that it was said to those of old, but I say to you. This is the body of the sermon that we're into right now. We looked at the Beatitudes and the admonition to be salt and light as the introduction. We looked at the theme, and that's where Jesus fulfills the law. He didn't come to bring a new religion. He didn't come to throw out the law. He fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law so that it could be fulfilled in us. So as Jesus is giving the body of the sermon, there's a little bit of an attack going on here, or at least a contrast with the Pharisees. And when it says you have heard, the scribes and Pharisees were the teachers of the day. The, peop, the common man did not know how to read the Bible. So anything he knew, he learned because he heard it from these individuals. So as Jesus is talking in his sermon, he's contrasting with the Pharisees, but he's also telling all the people in general, all along now, you have heard it this way. And in most cases, they weren't hearing the whole story. But I say to you, Jesus is putting the intent of the law back into the program, into the picture of what was taking place there. So we have Jesus contradicting perversions of the law. He wants to set them straight. And the ones in particular is that they were either restricting God's commands or they were extending God's commands. They weren't making it as big and bold as it was supposed to be, or else they were making it much more narrow so that a person in their own human righteousness could potentially obey them. And that's what people like to do with God's law all the time, is they, they want to make him manageable. They want him to be on our terms. And Jesus is saying, I'm, I'm sorry, you may have been hearing it a certain way, but that is not what the truth of Scripture is. So we have Jesus bringing and reversing both of those tendencies to try to get the picture of what God expects and what God can do in a person's heart uh, square and straight into people's minds. That heart-level living is the essence of God's new kingdom. This is what spirituality is about. It's not your ability to obey commands as you interpret them or for you decide what's right or wrong and to think that somehow God is obligated to be satisfied with that so that if you stand before him someday that you just did the best you could, he's a nice guy, 
and he'll say, okay, good enough, get in. You know, you were better than this guy, better than that guy, but not. come on, I like you. That's not righteousness. Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and the scribes, you'll never enter the kingdom of God. He was telling them, it's not about what you look like on the outside. It's about what happens in your heart of hearts and what takes place in there. The grand principle that we have in all of this is the kingdom living is from the heart. We read these words in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. As Jesus is addressing the crowds, he's bringing it right down to where they live, and that their righteousness is not sufficient. There's nothing in us that could ever make us acceptable to God. All of us have a sense of guilt inside. We know we're not the way we're supposed to be. Many people live their life uh, endlessly trying to look good, trying to be right, to get rid of the guilt feelings inside, uh, to somehow atone for the wrong things they've done. And the harder they try, the worse they're going to feel because you can't get rid of those things. Forgiveness, uh, release from guilt and from bondage comes through Jesus Christ. And that is the, the letter, trying to do it yourself. That'll kill you. You'll never make it. But the Spirit gives life. As Jesus enters a heart, he fulfills the law perfectly and gives the ability for that person to fulfill the law, to be able to live the kind of righteous life that God says that we need to have. The first example we looked at last week was about doing murder. Uh, they had just said murder is you just can't kill somebody because you'll go to jail if you do. Jesus is saying there's a whole murderous intent in your heart that makes you guilty before God. And the remedy for all of that was to urgently and humbly and in the power of God make it right with people. Value the lives of other people so much so that you don't devalue them in your speech. You don't devaluate, devalue their intelligence or their character. Uh, you don't just you know, insult them at the drop of a hat because they violated your control or your kingdom. Um, and we looked at all the different kinds of things, all the way to head shaking and eye rolling. And I, as I looked around and I looked at myself as I was talking about that, I sensed that all of us were like, yeah, guilty. That's me. I've done that. I do that. I do that all the time. I'll probably do it today before today's over. To show us our insufficiency of living the kind of righteous life that Jesus Christ puts forth. He comes in, he joins us in our hearts to help produce and change us throughout of our, our lives. So the, that remedy was the restorative passion. Today we're gonna to take a little bit of a turn and look at the next example that Jesus gives of the law and how deep it goes. So in the first part, we saw valuing life as individuals. If I do that, there'll be no murderous intent in my heart. I'll not even assassinate their character. I will value people. Today, we're going to look at valuing life as, as partners. In other words, God's covenant partners. We're going to look at the sin of adultery and what, what God says, how deep that really goes. So we're looking at the valuing of life 
everybody in general. Here and specifically, those that have entered into a covenant partnership with God through marriage. How do you, what does value look like there? What does righteousness look like? And we're going to see starting with what the Pharisees had said. What was the sum total of teaching that the people to that point knew? And what were they focusing on? And the Pharisees had said, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Period. That's all they really knew. And as with murder, it's kind of focusing on an external act. Actually going and committing adultery, that's it. As long as you don't do that, as long as you don't physically kill somebody, you've got these commandments down. That's all there is to it. And it kind of makes it more manageable, not that people still don't disobey them, but for the most part, in human righteousness, they could be obeyed. And that is what Jesus said. You have been heard. That this, this is the sum teaching of everything that you have said to that point. The focus, eternal, external. On the outside, just don't do that. And if you don't do that, you're good. You're righteous. You've got every, all your bases are covered. Jesus wants to say, well, wait a minute. I'm going to take this and put it right back to where it was supposed to be all along, to what the intent of the law was supposed to be, that focus of heart that all of a sudden takes that command that seems kind of, kind of cut and dry and brings it into an area that pervades all of our hearts for all of us the heart focus that needs to be there. So Jesus then wants to let, let them know what the law intended. And here is the beginning of his explanation. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So now we see the law going back to what Jesus meant to begin with in the whole area of sexual purity to saying that if a man even looks, and, and ladies, I don't want you like just kind of kicking back and say, okay, you get those men now. This is talking about men. That's all that matters. Uh, that's not the intent here either. This is people. People in general, the righteous standard of God when it comes to sexual purity goes right down into the heart. The example given here is with a, a, a man who looks at a woman with lustful intents, committed adultery in his heart. The first thing I want to point out is the depth of the law, the, how deep the law goes. It goes into the things that you could hide from everybody else. You could be the only person in the world who knows the lustful thoughts in your heart. Jesus says, I'm going there. I'm putting my finger on that. Because no person is an island, and no person has a secret heart that God doesn't know. And this secret heart, and we're going to see, actually bleeds out and affects other people anyway. But this, this depth that goes on here, as with murder, we all kind of felt guilty last week. Like, yeah, I guess I'm a murderer. <laughs> I have this. We're going to see today as Jesus paints this picture that every person is just as guilty in the area of adultery as they were in murder. Uh, as with murder, I want to point out that adultery does not equal lust. They are different. They are different things. And we're going to see exactly what Jesus is saying in a moment here. Not that one is um, somehow okay. In fact, they're all sufficient to be able to condemn somebody to hell. They're all sufficient to make us 
fall short of the glory of God. But in a sense, it's not just because with murder, well, I thought a bad thought, I might as well kill him. It's not like you think a bad thought, you might as well just go out and act on it because it's just the same thing. It's not same in that sense. It's different, but the penalties and the consequences that come about um, are, are drastic and horrible. A couple details linguistically about that verse in particular. When it says looks, that's a present participle. So when it says everyone who looks at a woman or a person, um, that is a constant looking. It's a gazing. It's a gazing with the intent to have an imaginary relationship, to, to harbor it, to keep it going. And it's not as if the verse is saying, if you continually look in your heart, even though no one else knows it, you have somehow then will commit a heart adultery. The verse is a little different than that. When it says that you've already committed adultery, what it's saying in the original language is, is in the tense of what takes place is that you were born a person of adultery. And it's evidenced by the fact that you do gaze and look. So it's not that that lust is the issue. It's like Jesus is saying, if there's adultery in your heart, it will cause you to look lustfully, to make that second glance to look that way. So it's not as if it's a progression that lust comes first and then it becomes adultery. Jesus is saying in your heart, if you've ever looked lustfully, that's because you're already an adulterer. You were born that way. Just like the, you know, you don't have to teach children to call names to the other person, to, to say things like that. That murderous intent is part of what's being born in sin. And part of being born in sin is going to be being, being messed up when it comes to purity. That it's not going to be right. And because you're wrong to start with, then the lustful looks come in. The inference, if I weren't an adulterer, I wouldn't be gazing. I wouldn't be lusting the wrong way. And in all of this, Jesus reaffirms the sanctity of marriage and the divine institution that marriage is, that it needs to be held up high, and that nothing should come against people who are in covenant partnership and looking in the wrong way at another person or anything like that. Uh, this whole esteem for marriage, the scriptures say, let marriage be held in honor among all. And let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge. And this is where it starts to expand. Not just the adulterous, the sexually immoral. It kind of puts those together in the same plane in this verse. Is that in any way, shape, or form, that sexuality expresses itself, in, unless it's in the covenant relationship of marriage, it's wrong. It's not right. Now, this is an easy message for our culture to take today because we live in a very, very righteous culture that says, of course, of course, sex is for marriage. Everybody knows that, and it's, that's just the way it ought to be. No, in fact, to say this today puts you at odds with almost everyone everywhere in the church or outside the church. The whole idea of morality has been taken and cheapened so much so that it's almost like, well, just people have to do what they want to do. And if it comes from a heart of love, how can it be wrong? And just let it go, let it go, let it go. Uh, marriage is to be honored. Anything less than that is a sin of the heart 
for a sin of the life. God's commands that he gives in the area of sexuality are not because God is a prude, not because he's a Puritan, because he invented the whole thing. And if he's the inventor and he says, if you want maximum enjoyment in marriage and relationships, here's the blueprint, here's how it works. Anytime you deviate from it, you're going to take away from the package. You're going to take away from the beauty that I intended. Now, I, I was supposed to stop at Bojack's this morning, and I forgot. And I was going to get a donut, and I was going to wrap it up in a nice pretty box with a bow. And, and I was going to tell one of you, and, I, and since I didn't do it, I can pick on it. Tom Dakin, I got this, this great donut for you in this beautiful package. And then I was going to like just start tearing it, writing all over it, ripping it up, and then start eating the donut. And I'll say, Tom, this is really for you. And, and that's what sexual immorality does. It takes the beautiful package with the bows and the ribbons on it and, and, and the thing that was intended for a specific person and just says, you know what? I'm going to start eating it now. Start messing with it now. And whether we do it actually or in our brains really doesn't matter because the fact is that we're missing the boat. We are we're perverting what God has given as a beautiful thing. And this is where the beatitude is, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. This is where Jesus is expressing what a pure heart looks like or what it doesn't look like. The marriage bed undefiled, pure before God. In the world that we live in today, even marriage is being redefined. And I don't think God is in heaven thinking, oh no, I've lost control of this. Marriage will always be a covenant between one man and one woman for a lifetime. No matter what a government says, no matter what a world says, that will not change that fact. You can call it whatever you want from a society standpoint. Before the eyes of the Lord, it is a covenant relationship before him. It doesn't matter how I define it. If I wake up this morning and I came in and told everybody, you know what, I feel like a teapot today. I want to be a teapot today. No matter how bad I want to be, I'm a little, I want to sing my song. I'm a little teapot, short and stout. That goes with it. You know, that, that whole song, it doesn't change it. I could do a vote. Say, can you guys vote that I could be a teapot today, please? And you could all vote yes. Doesn't change the fact and the reality that marriage belongs to God. And his church needs to honor that and follow that in all that it does. You can't rewrite God's rules through the majority. It just doesn't work that way. So from the church of Jesus Christ, those that follow him, a covenant marriage of a man and a woman is what God intended, and that's what it will always be. So as Jesus is unfolding this for the people, he's really kind of stepping into the, I'll call it the hidden playground of the heart. Steps inside of each of us, and takes his righteous command and says, this is how I'm going to apply it in your life. And as the, I want to make a few distinctions as we understand this. First off is to distinguish temptation from sin. Everybody's tempted. Being tempted is not a sin. Seeing something and the fact that you saw it doesn't make you have to sin. It's the difference between the second look or the prolonged look or the stealing of that thought and tucking it away and rehearsing it over and over again and enjoying it in that little private playground that nobody else can see or nobody else knows about. 
it, it's, a ca it's not a casual that you happen to see something. It's the persistence. Uh, it's not that you've involuntarily, I mean, you can't really look at a football game today without commercials coming on that have things that are inappropriate and it's all over the place. It's in music that you listen to. I mean, our society is permeated with it. You can't stop it, but you can stop what it does once you do see it or notice it. One of the old preachers used to say, you can't stop the bird from flying over your head, but you can stop it from making a nest in your hair. And that's it. That's when it comes to the things around us that we see. It's what we do in our hearts with that. The second glance that can, you know, we sing that song all of the time. Um, the link of the eyes to the heart. Be careful, little eyes, what you see. For the Father is up above looking down in love. Be careful, little eyes, what you see. And if you know that Casting Crown song, Slow Fade, it, it fits in perfectly with what we're talking about here today that there's a connection between what I see and what my heart will dwell upon. Job said it this way in, the, in Job 31.1, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze, gaze upon a virgin? He says later, and this is as he's defending himself and accusations are coming, coming against him. If my step has turned aside from the way and my heart has gone after my eyes and if any spot has stuck to my hands. Job is kind of pleading his innocence here. He says, not like my eyes have followed my heart. Uh, it's not like my, I, I'm, I'm not wrong in this. His eyes, he saw, were linked to the passions and things that were in front of him. So in all of this thing, it's not Attempting, uh, uh, being tempted is not a sin, but there is a great link about what we see. And there are some things that we see that we do have a choice about. And this really becomes a sticky issue because it's not like you can write a law and saying, this is what every Christian should watch as far as movies. This is what every Christian should listen to as far as music. Uh, because not every person is the same. But in all of this, we can't also just say it's a free-for-all. You can just go out and watch any movie you want and it won't affect you. It's okay because it's entertainment. Uh, there has to be a place where the covenant of our heart affects our movie watching. It affects the music that we listen to. And to the degree that it changes our heart or links to our heart, we need to be able to set that guide, that garrison out there and not just let, oh, whatever happens to be on. And, you know, I've, we've all been there. We have something on the screen. And, you know, I shouldn't really be watching this, but the controller is across the room. And it's not really convenient now to have to get up and go change it. There are times where that's, that's what we need to do. We need to govern what comes to our eyes because of the link that it has to our heart and the consequences that come along with that. And in this comes the imagination. Have you ever noticed how great imagination is for some people? Like you look at the creativity. Now, I, I won't admit to this, but if you ever go on like Pinterest, uh, on those kind of things, and you look what people have made and what they have come up with and the ideas that people have, or you look at art and you think people are creative. They have wonderful imaginations. And the imagination is a great gift from God. You can marvel at it when it is used properly. 
But many people take their imagination and they let it run and become a playground of their very own heart. And what happens with an imagination in a positive sense, you see things and you keep collecting images, you collect ideas and you collect this and you just keep putting it in there. And, and then you let the imagination kind of put it all together. And that's beautiful when that happens. You get ideas that way. But when the imagination is used for the sinful heart, it takes images. It takes ideas. And it puts them all together and it runs with it. And that's what happens in a heart long before the physical act of sin ever takes place. It's that slow fade that the Casting Crown sings about. That, that you give your heart away and that imagination can take and remember pictures from 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago that is just kind of stored there, and it just plays with them whenever it feels like, and brings them out, and you know, nobody even knows. And I'm in here sitting away, enjoying myself, and people think I got it together. They think I'm in a good place. The imagination of the heart. John Stott said, deeds of shame are preceded by fantasies of shame, and the inflaming of the imagination by the indiscipline of the eyes. This is an area that we need help. We need God to intervene and help us to garrison our heart, to make a covenant with our eyes, to be able to help each other. And one great way that is just even the way people dress, to dress so as not to really cause more trouble for people who already have a lot of trouble. And in all of this, whoops, everybody actually ever see a tornado? like been there with one, I, I don't think I ever have. I've seen some nasty clouds and some nasty things taking place and big winds. I've never really seen a twister. I'm told it's terrifying and that what takes place around it is devastating. And this is compared to letting your heart in the area of purity just go wild. In fact, in Hosea, it says, for they sow the wind and they reap the whirlwind. When our minds just are allowed to go wherever they want, it has consequences. It makes a difference. It affects our own purity. It affects our ability to function properly with other people. It, it, it's a devastating type thing. Another example is, can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? You can't let those kind of thoughts go unchecked and expect that there isn't um, going to be some repercussion, that there's not going to be some kind of consequence that takes place inside. As we think about the consequences and all of the things that take place, we're not talking about something that just affects a few people. In this area, there is universal guilt, as there is with murder. That everybody born in this world is somehow impure from the start. And that impurity has to be dealt with by God. He has to be the one who comes in and gets the heart forgiven and then sets it on a positive path, moving in a right direction. And the rest of the verses that Jesus um, gives us here kind of give us that progression that takes place. And he gives the moving of a playground to a battleground kind of situation. And in this, it says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. 
If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go to hell. Anybody practice this verse recently? What in the world is Jesus saying? Is he really, does he really mean that? Well, I would say yes and no. He's not talking about self-mutilation. He didn't want everyone in his sermon all of a sudden start chopping hands off, gouging out eyes. But he is bringing a drastic battleground tactic to the playground of the mind that he's condemning. Jesus is using a figure of speech. Now, throughout church history, there have been those that have taken that very, very literally. And they actually cut off things that would prevent them from not sinning anymore, thinking that somehow this, this physical maiming would somehow make them pure and righteous. He's not talking about that. In fact, Origen is one of the early church fathers who did this, and they had a church had to come up with rules saying, no, 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 you don't, you don't mutilate yourself. You don't do that. Uh, it's self-mortification, and that's something that's very different. Uh, a literal interpretation, if you took it for what it says, really would not be enough because you could gouge an eye out. What do you got left? Got another eye. You could gouge both eyes out. You still have a memory. You still have a mind that has things tucked away in it. You see, it's not the physical body or getting rid of a piece of it. Jesus is saying that when something is wrong, when something is not right and it's dying, it needs to be removed. There needs to be a sacrifice. Something drastic has to happen in order to stop the cancer to keep it from spreading. And we get the idea with the cancer, when there's a cancer, you need to cut it out. And Jesus is saying, when this happens, you need to cut something out. You need to take a drastic action because the sin of your heart is so destructive, so powerful, that you need to do something or what it will do to your life will be destructive and, and uh, affect not just yourself, people around you. So the point in this Obedience to God requires drastic sacrifice on all of our parts. That we can't entertain a playground of the mind. We need to view it more as a battleground. Uh, if a part of our life is given over to sin, we must be convinced that it is more profitable for that part of our life to die rather than to condemn all that we are. Kind of a sin that requires surgery that takes place. The admonition here is kind of along the lines of behave in this world as if you have no eyes when it comes to sexual temptation. Now the problem that we run into here is that people very often are convicted about the, the, the playground of the heart, that I am not thinking right. I have thoughts that aren't proper. But often they just wish it were different. Or they may hear a sermon, not maybe like today or some other sermon, where there's a little bit of guilt about it, and then they get over it. They wish that somehow there was just magic and that just sin would just float away and their heart would be pure and their eyes would be uh, holy to the Lord. But that's not the way it works. You see, there's a gut 
level repentance that has to happen, whether it be adultery, murderous intent, or any deep embedded sin of the heart where we have to see it for as bad as God says it is, to see it as destructive as he is. Because if we just think it's a playground issue, we're just going to toy with it, toy with it, toy with it, just kind of keep it a, a secret hidden part of the heart that, and the rest of my Christian life will just go along and it won't be a big deal. It doesn't work that way. The problem is it's not just something you get rid of by casually wishing that it weren't there. If we don't go beyond that, we will forever be in bondage and addicted to a heart of lust. The illusion here was to a surgeon who would come in and, and cut off the cancerous portion, get rid of the gangrene, the thing that was causing death. Uh, an old commentator, Benson, said, by the force of a strong resolution founded on the grace of God, deny yourself the use of your senses in all cases where the use of them ensnares your soul. God puts the law where it's supposed to have been all along to govern the very purity of a heart. The principle, eternity is more important than time, and purity more important than culture. We may look around us and say, you know, in a lot of ways, the church is losing the purity war. That doesn't mean the fight's over. That doesn't mean we just say, oh, well, let's just then let everything happen, and it's just okay. No, God says it's not. His standard of purity has always been the same. And the principle of this is that what happens in this life is not as important as what will happen in eternity. So I need to make my time on this earth obedient to him, no matter what culture does, no matter what people say. And you're not going to find a lot of places around here anymore that want to lift up true biblical morality. That's saying this is how men and women are to conduct themselves. This is what a heart is supposed to look like as far as purity of the heart is concerned. Some people have said, now, isn't what happens in my heart, isn't it kind of a victimless crime? Like, no harm, no foul. Why can't I just imagine things? It doesn't hurt anybody. I think for those that feel that way or don't feel that the lustful heart is worth fighting, who have just given into it, we, we kind of lose touch with the whole doctrine of sin and what sin does to a person on the inside. And a few things about sin, when we understand them, give us the, the knowledge and the desire to fight that fight, to not let lust win the day. And a few things about sin is one that sin is deep. Sin goes way down. It's not just a surface little playground issue. Uh, I, I don't know if any of you have ever gone into a, um, a stream or something where you can't see the bottom, either because it's polluted or it's just cedar water or whatever. But, but somebody's in there, and, and before they go in, they'll say, um, can I come in? Is it safe? And they'll say, it's fine because I can touch. What do they mean? There's a bottom. Sin doesn't have a bottom. Sin is deep. And as it ensnares a heart, there is no end to the misery that will come about unless it's removed. Sin keeps sucking you in and sucking you down. There is no come into the water, it's safe, you can touch bottom. Just play with it some, it's okay. Sin is not only deep, sin is 
powerful. There isn't a person in this world in their own strength that can combat lust, can combat the impurities of heart that we were born with the propensity to go commit. It's, it's too powerful. It's not manageable. It's not something, oh, I got this. I'm okay. I can just figure it out and do it on my own. No, if you, if you think of it that way, you will never have victory. You'll be in a spiral constantly of, of falling. You can't fight it alone. That's one of the powers of accountability partners or a friend that you can check with and they can kind of see how you're doing and what's happening. It's a very valuable tool. It's part of being involved in a church. Usually when people let immorality take their heart and they start acting on it, all of a sudden, you know, they go away from church because the church people bring a level of conviction. And being in there, I don't want to keep hearing that message from God because he keeps telling me not to do everything I want to do. So the church becomes less and less important and they fade away. Sin is very, very subtle. Very, very subtle. I was talking with Brian Scott yesterday. I'm going to use him as a sermon and we were talking about power tools. And, and he was talking about, you don't know how your old tool starts to fail until you use the new tool. And it was an impact driver. And it's like, okay, I had this old tool and it's working so and so for a while. But then I tried one that wasn't worn out. And oh my goodness, I didn't realize the change that had taken place over the usage. And this is the idea of subtle. When a heart begins to fade and go away from God, it's not like you even know it sometimes. It comes in subtle and it grabs a heart and changes it and moves it and moves it a little further from God. And often in the process, the person who's on the path of destruction has no idea that they are fading the way that they're fading. The Casting Crown song that I mentioned says it's a slow fade when you give yourself away. It's a slow fade when black and white are turned to gray. And thoughts invade, choices made, a price will be paid when you give yourself away. People never crumble in a day. Daddies never crumble in a day. Families never crumble in a day. The sin of the heart left unrepented of and not dealt with, creates a subtle fade in a heart where the things of God become less appealing, where my desire and excitement to read the scripture just kind of fades. It's a calloused heart that all of a sudden finds itself really far away from where it had been at one time. And they scratch their head saying, I don't know how this fell apart. I don't know how I got here, but I'm here. And my heart is so addicted to these things that I can't even think about being on a computer without where that computer can take me. Or I just, it's not a computer, it's just my imagination. And I, and I just can't, I can't not do it. It's become part of me because sin is subtle. Sin is not only subtle, it's perverting anything that is beyond God's perfect design for sexual intimacy and marriage is perversion. It doesn't matter what kind. It doesn't matter whether it's, and you can fill in all the things that happen in our world today, all the different kinds of immorality that there can be. And, and what happens is, is that all of a sudden this perversion takes place 
in, in a person's heart and mind, it just doesn't seem as bad anymore. It just seems like kind of accept it because it's been there so long and I'm tired of fighting it. So I'm just going to let it go. Just going to let it harbor, going to let it stay inside of my heart. It's perverted thinking where all of a sudden they thought, well, maybe it's not so bad. Well, maybe it's okay. And they talk themselves into a new morality that was never the morality that God had intended. Sin, perverting, sin is enslaving. When it's let go long enough, it grabs a heart and holds it in bondage. If you look at the passage of scripture before that about a murderous intent, it says when you give yourself to that, you're going to be delivered over to the jailer till you've paid every last penny. It's no different here. The lustful heart gets delivered to a jailer and exacting every ounce of life out of that person and sucking it from them, the very last penny. And it, and it, as it, um, <clears throat> excuse me, as it works its way out and all of these other things take place, sin is ultimately destructive. John 10.10, 10, Jesus says, you know, the thief comes to kill, steal, and to destroy. I have come that you might have life and that you might have it super abundantly. The beauty of what God says is that I can bring a purity to a heart. You may have failed tremendously in your life. You may be living in failure at this moment. It is a path to destruction, but the greatest thing that I want to say about sin today is that sin is defeated because of the cross. That in Jesus Christ, there is a kingdom strength that is available that can undo the addiction, that can undo the slavery and all of the other things that have, have wrapped us up. And, and I want to say when I talk about enslaving and addicting sin, it's not just immorality. Some people are addicted or they're enslaved by unforgiveness. They may be addicted to wealth, to money, they may have whatever it could be, an enslaving sin, all of the answers are the same. It's the cross of Jesus Christ that brings freedom, that can bring deliverance and can bring hope. The heart that is just wallowing in sin and defeated by it doesn't have to be that way. There is a savior who has come with power over all those destructive elements, enslaving elements of sin, and said, I have come to give you abundant life. People are sometimes enslaved by sins of the past. They're enslaved through, through the anger of what's happened to them in the past. Jesus brings hope in all of those situations. The scriptures say, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. In our hearts, may we never just see sin as a playground issue. It's a battleground issue. And it's not because God wants to take away people's fun. Anytime God restricts or in any way has a negative command, thou shalt not, 
It's always for two positive reasons. It's to provide and to protect. To provide the best and to protect us from the destructive tendencies that he knows is part of sin. There is hope for any heart. There isn't any sin that can so ensnare a believer's heart that there isn't hope and that there isn't victory. But often that does not come alone. It often comes through help. Sometimes it comes through counseling. Sometimes it comes through another believer who you can open up to and say, hey, I'm struggling. Can you begin to pray for me with this? Can I share this with you? Can we work together? Can you somehow help me through this? In all of the things of Jesus as he gives out the Sermon on the Mount, he is driving down into our hearts our own insufficiency. That sin is so powerful, you cannot in your own righteousness ever expect to, to get victory. But he's also saying, I have fulfilled it. I have broken the power of sin. So that as he fulfills his righteousness in the life of a believer, the empowering ability to be even the most enslaving and addicting sin is there. So that true purity can be restored so that they can live that beatitude. Blessed are the pure in spirit. And as God takes us through each of these different examples, there's four more to go where he puts the law back where it's supposed to be. We ought to feel universally guilty, but we should also be universally excited that we have a savior who has beaten the power of sin and that we don't have to be enslaved. We can be the blessed are those of the Beatitudes as God lives his life in us. Anything short of that, you won't be happy. You won't be blessed. You will be struggling. Life will be difficult. And if for some reason you have a little, little swath of life right now that seems okay, the, the bill will come due. You can't violate God's commands, outwardly or inwardly, and expect life to be right. God is the author. God is the giver of life. He wrote the book on how we ought to live it. Blessed are the pure in spirit. Those are the ones that see God. Those are the ones that the kingdom of God belongs to. Let's pray. Father, I just ask right now that you will, within our heart of hearts, help us to deal with things that we know we need to deal with. Father, if we're living in a playground instead of a battleground, uh, convict us. Help us to see that there is a super abundance that you have for the heart that allows you to have, its, have your way. Lord, I pray that you will help us in our deepest, deepest parts to be honest with ourselves and to let you shed the light of your word upon it that we could make the changes that we need to make. In Jesus' name, amen.